is that artistic? It is. It's a piece of art. Um, remember when uh, uh, we were talking about my having gone to um, New York with the rock band? That's right. And I hung out with uh, our guitarist Lauren's extended family. Mm-hmm. So her cousin Shoham is a uh, designer of things. And uh, this was part of some kind of project. She made these kind of uh, plywood rainbows. And they were scattered throughout the apartment. And she was slowly, she had made a ton of them for some event and had leftovers of them of different sizes all over the place. And I think she's been, you know, giving them away to house guests to kind of get rid of them. So she told Lauren and me each to take one. So mine is, mine is there on the, it's sort of an orange arc. It's nice. Yeah. So what um, you were saying was that um, Oscar, the reason we, we were having technical problems uh, uh, two Skype calls ago because you couldn't find your earbuds, and you were saying that uh, Oscar had, along with other things, uh, t- thrown them in the toilet. He had thrown two of them in the toilet, not the one that I presently am wearing, which I had to go out um, and find in the car, which yeah. it's sort of a safe zone, because when he's in the car, he's strapped down by at least three points. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like he sounds like Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's just that's a that's a, that's a three point uh, securing it's three situation point, as well. Three point savior <laughs> restraint system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, I it's been a, a month, a little more than a month since we last talked. Yeah. And in this last month, um, Oscar's toddlerness has ramped up. Oh, to really? A level of activity which is delightful. But has put me in a different zone. He's, he uh, was already than previous. He was like, already pretty frisky in that hotel bar. He he's frisky. He's 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 active. <laughs> he's curious. He's energetic, um, and and not sleeping well at night. So oh. we, I uh, uh, I do apologize for our slowness in getting started. But I also don't apologize because I'm a, I'm just <laughs> lucky. I'm surprised to be here at all. No, I, you were you were right on time. To your credit, you you signed in at exactly uh, ten o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock uh, wherever the fuck you live, and uh, it was the it was tech that was the problem. It was Skype that was giving us trouble. So right. no worries. And uh, daycare, early daycare call, early daycare. Take them over there. So, so this new advanced toddling, what form does it take? Um, the toddling is not is not the proper term because his. His balance and uh, his—he uh, is inerrant in his uh, in his movements. He's fast, he's direct, and uh, he's just into everything, which is which is great. But I think I think it's daycare is is both the uh, 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 good good and bad things by daycare. The good thing is they they give us a little bit of time to you know clean the house, write some poems, that sort of thing. But I think they're also teaching him how to be a person. Oh, um, you know. Which is uh, which? Which person are they teaching him how to be? They're teaching the him how to be a, 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 a polite and, and organized. All right, man. You know, he he puts his shoes away. Ask for. Hold on, you're cutting out. There you go. There you go. You're back. Beginning to ask for you know things, uh, get things that he wants, express his his needs and desires and wants. Uh, complain a little bit. Uh, he likes books a lot. Suddenly, so he's always you know grabbing. Grabbing me by the hand as I'm, you know, looking at the Twitter and taking me over to the bookcase for some of his books. Although, as I pointed out, he's not respecting my one book. 
in the house. Your your signed first edition of Airships, which he right. which he almost threw in the toilet. The one book I own that's in the house. Which, yeah, which made it made it to the uh, threshold. It was a liminal in the uh, um, restroom, a restroom <laughs> liminality for Mister Hanna. Uh, but nobody wants to hear about that. It's all normal stuff. It's great. So wh- how um how did you come across? Assigned first edition of airships. I also have a first edition of airships, but it is not um, it is not signed, and now it never will be. No, sadly. I went to uh, the Swanee Writers Conference in two thousand five. Yeah, as a scholar, I hadn't published a book yet, but I'd published a bunch of poems, so I got to go and uh, uh, you know hang out in a workshop, but not have to be workshopped, and go to the the porch of the French house and, and drink bourbon and attend lectures and it was lovely uh swanee university of the south is one of the prettiest places um in, in america it's on this bluff a little higher altitude looking over uh, uh the plains it's it's woodsy it's uh, uh misty even in the summer pleasant place mm-hmm. and uh, barry hannah was not teaching there but he was going to be there for a couple of days um giving a reading and i thought how much i would uh like to have a uh, signed copy of the book, and so I bought a copy of the book uh, from Faulkner House Books in yeah. New Orleans, one mm-hmm. of a, a great bookstore, especially for for uh, old older books of my taste. And uh, brought it there, and was not able to get it signed by him. So I, oh, I uh, was not on the ball enough, even though I had the book and I had Barry Hanna, uh, but I couldn't put the two together. So I sent it home with. Uh, with my friend, a mutual friend who was living in Oxford at the time, uh, Matt Walsh, and, and and he got it signed for me. Oh, that's great! That's and then great. sent it to me. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, you know, uh, Barry Hanna. I was I was uh, d- teaching last week in St. Louis. Something I will talk about on the podcast in a moment because it led me to do a little literary soul searching, which I'll mm. tell you about. But um, while there, I had the conversation that I have. I, with the faculty there, among the many things we talked about, and the faculty at at uh, WashU in St. Louis turned out to be wonderful people. I only hung once out with you, a, once you saw them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Once you encountered them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. turns out they are excellent. Uh, yeah. But as as invisible entities, yo, that's right. The first couple of days I was there, like I didn't I didn't see any faculty for forty eight hours. They, I was kind of dropped at a hotel, friendlily dropped at a hotel, and then. I was installed in an office where, uh, is it like a like a like a doctor? I t- I, see, I saw patients with their mm-hmm. sick fiction. So, um, <laughs> no, it wasn't some. No, of, I know some of it wasn't sick. Uh, You're pushing the metaphor too far. I, I really was. I'm really, yeah. but that's what I do. Mm-hmm. You felt like a doctor, but they needn't feel like patients, right? And they didn't, which is part of what I'll tell you about. But anyway, uh. So when I was out with the faculty, among the things we talked about was encounters with Barry Hanna. And this is the thing, no matter where I go, whether it's to a college for a reading or a writer's conference or uh, to, to Missoula with you and Robert, um, the subject of things that Barry Hanna did in the town that we are now sitting and talking in that were crazy <laughs> back when he was drinking and was, yeah. was a troubled man. Uh, it's something that always comes up. And of course... You know, one does not want to be that person, right? I thought, you know, I thought when I was going to St. Louis, I, I, there's, it always, the thought always crosses my mind. Maybe I'll get in a fight with someone. 
Yeah. And then have sex with someone. Or maybe, but the same person, both times. It's maybe St. Louis. I'll get really drunk or take my clothes off at a party or, you know. Gamble, gamble on a riverboat. Those people will not like me anymore, but yeah. they, will, they will always talk about me. But I didn't do any of those no. things. I just stayed in my hotel room and, and uh, edited my short story collection. All right. So what happened was um, the, I did these tutorials. Um, and I should, I should say what the end of the story is first, uh, which is that I ended That's up... That's narrat- narrative technique? Yes, it is. It is. I'm going to frame, frame the story <laughs> now. Uh, Back in the classroom. My departure from St. Louis was uh, was actually quite bittersweet because by the end I really liked all the students and we went out and got drunk and had a good time together and uh, I think they're great people. The end. Meanwhile, back at the beginning of the story, um, I had had a vexing week with their fiction because a lot of the fiction writers are writing experimental fiction, um, which is a very loaded term, I think. And one that I I want your uh, opinion on in a in a few minutes, but um, I felt that it was it, it was grammatically imprecise. They were they were writing stories that um, they departed from representational reality in various ways, and were clearly playing around with language. But I I, I thought that the, that some of the sentences were merely confusing. There were dangling modifiers and misplaced modifiers and. Uh, verb phrases that implied simultaneous action, but that were actually describing subsequent, no, what'd you call it, you know, like linear action. And there were um, problems in point of view, and there were problems with verb tenses. And so I did what I do, which is I scribbled all over the manuscripts, you know, I wavy underlined all these problems, I was saying, you know, poor word choice, some some of the words didn't seem to mean what the what the writers thought they meant. Because it's hard to find to tell where the the enthusiastic embrace of the sophistication of experiment um, ended uh, or began, and and where um, poor compositional skills ended. Exactly, exactly. And so I was quite nervous about these sessions. Um, uh, on, okay, on one level, I was nervous about these tutorials because what it, it was not going to be a workshop. It was I read eleven pieces of fiction. And then I wrote, I marked them up and I wrote editorial memos. And then I was going to have individual meetings with each student, hour long tutorial sessions with each student. So I was a, it was a bit, uh, it was a bit unnerving. And then I got to town and just because of various, you know, child obligations, someone was out of town and wasn't coming in until Wednesday, various things. I saw no faculty members Mm -hmm. until two days into this. So I was quite alone. Mm -hmm. Um, and these, which was fine, but these, I felt it, it It was this weird sense of disconnection for a couple of days. And then the students were sort of openly hostile to my criticism. I would, I would say, you know, um, this sentence seems to mean one thing, but I think you mean it to mean the other thing. And they would say, well, that's an intentional ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, okay, well, you're, this word does not mean what it seems to mean in this sentence. Um, and the student would say, "Well, I'm it actually- does in this story." Yeah, or in this uh-huh. one particular case, I'm thinking the student said, "Well, I'm using an archaic definition yeah. of the word," to which I said, "Well, even the most erudite reader will not think, oh, of course he's using the archaic definition." They would think, "Oh, this guy doesn't know what that word means." Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, every problem that I pointed out, they just said to me, "That's not a problem, and you don't understand 
what I'm trying mm-hmm. to do. And by the middle of the week, <laughs> one, one student came in pre-angry. Like, she had clearly yeah. been told that I was not down with experimental fiction. Mm-hmm. and Which is not true. It, it's not at all true. And I not will at all get true. To, I'm going to get to that. I would say you're a practitioner of it. Mm, I'm sure these students would not say that. But I, th- I think that, well, I think all good fiction is experimental in a way that it's trying to do a thing that nothing that has never quite been done before. And you may use, a, you know, you may use a certain amount of uh, conventional techniques to achieve that, but you may not. And either way, you're, you're performing an experiment. You're seeing if you can evoke a single, a particular thing in a particular way. And I think all, all, all great writing is, is written at least in the spirit of experimentation, even if, if it uses fairly conventional means to achieve that. But anyway, but not necessarily at the sentence level. Right. No, not, not necessarily um, incomprehensible sentences. Th- this is what it comes down to for me. You know, they they um, um, I started asking the students, so who are you reading that um, th- that is like a model for your work? The answer was either Gertrude Stein or nobody. Gertrude Stein was was a frequent frequently mentioned uh, writer, which I understand. Um, uh, a few mentioned uh, Barthelme, but you know Barthelme is quite comprehensible. Uh, they mentioned their professor Catherine Davis, who is in fact one of my favorite novelists and is a very very peculiar writer. I mean, her books are quite unusual and they're not realism, mm-hmm. um, but her sentences are pure gold. I mean, mm-hmm. she's she she. Her, her sentences uh, display a mastery of English grammar from which she is then able to, in subtle ways, subvert it to her own uses. And my feeling about these students, not because they weren't smart, but because they're 23 and they're just starting out, they have not mastered the language that they're trying to subvert. And mm-hmm. that remained my conviction to the end of the week. Um, in the end, I think, they, I think we kind of found a a middle ground. I think maybe I was sort of useful to them, but maybe not. I mean, well, well, if you held the line, if you held the line on that, then that's useful. I did at one point. Yeah. You know, one student after fifteen minutes, I just said, after like everything I said enraged her. I said, I'm, I, you know, I think, uh, I, th- I think we're done here. You know, I'll email you my notes, and you can email me if you have any questions. Yeah. And she didn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so what it came down to is, but within one of the other writers they mentioned was Gary Lutz. Have you have you read Gary Lutz? No, never heard. Okay, so Gary Lutz. He, he is uh, three separate students mentioned him, and so and we're into Mc, him. maybe a McSweeney's writer. I don't know if he is or not. Um, he's he's got a, a few books out from the small press, and um, I, you know, I I really wanted to go look at the stuff that mm-hmm. they were that they were reading and see if I could you know see if I could get into that headspace mm-hmm. um, and you know and come out of this having learned something. And so uh, I went and I read some Gary Lutz, and he, he actually, I'll, I'll link to it in the notes, it, he has a um, story uh, in the new Recommended Reading. Do you, do you read mm-hmm. Recommended Reading? This, the mm-hmm. Electric Literature Gang, they recommend a story every week, a previously published story. So my whole impression of Gary Lutz is smart guy, good writer, excellent command of grammar, mm-hmm. and excellent rhythm in the prose but but it's like every fourth word is some clever thing he made up 
Hmm. So his writing is sort of like blah, 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 special word, blah, 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 special mm-hmm. word, blah, mm-hmm. blah, special word. I found I f- keep finding, you know, I was trying to read him and I kept laughing at really good lines, but none of them were the ones with the special words in them. Mm-hmm. So essentially the, the the special word thing, it just kept ca- catching me up short, right? It suddenly foregrounded the notion of the author and his strivings. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a thing you get to do. Right, you get to foreground the artificiality of the process that mm-hmm. you're going through, and I realized, of course, though this is presumably a legitimate thing to do. Mm-hmm. For me, I feel that writing is not an effort to obscure the strivings of the author, but that the, that the object of the writing should take precedence, right? And that the that the experimentation with language should serve the thing that the language is attempting to describe. And I, of course, realized this week, I guess if you'd challenged me on it before, I would have said it then too, but it really hit home this past week that that is a, that is not... But it's important. Well, it, it, you know, my way of seeing this is not the only way of seeing this, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to know what you think of this. I mean, do, do you have a, a philosophical stance on this? I just, I, I'm... If, you know, I kept finding myself almost using the word indulgent in these sessions. And a few times the students did, too. They said, maybe this, say, is this a little bit too self-indulgent? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been contemplating the, the implications of that term. Because on the other hand, my craft talk was about how you should ignore what people say and write whatever the hell you want and stick to your guns. Because that's the only way you're going to arrive at something that is meaningful to you. But on the other hand, if it drives you to write something that no one else can understand, what have you created? What have you done if you have six readers worldwide who give a crap what you're doing? Well, perhaps you've explored what is, in the, in, over the course of your body of work, a dead end that was necessary to reach in order to uh, uh, get to where you eventually had to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, developing writers, um, I think, excellent developing writers or terrible developing writers, Look for models. Look for things to imitate, to borrow from. And the easiest things to imitate and borrow from are things that stick out, right? Okay. Uh, um, you know, per- particularly affected styles, part- you know, really, um, you know, handholds. You know, some, someone like, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in poetry, you know, maybe things that are really, that are, that are uh, uh, signal moves of a writer that really aren't necessarily the spirit of the work, but are easy mm-hmm. to borrow from the blanks of a certain period of, of uh, Jory Graham's writing, right? Uh, sure. The, the, uh, some of the surrealist moves, particularly as, as Dean Young uses them. Sure. Um, you know, and on, 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 which are easy to, to borrow from, to, to ape, but you're not really taking, you didn't, you didn't get there, you're not using them right, and it's not your place to use them. You need to find your own way to to your 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 style to well your, you 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 remind me of things. all the all the um when i was a graduate student i was writing all those very voicey stories that were ripoffs of barlame basically mm-hmm. yeah you know so so it's 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 fine but it's certainly very easy it's it's easy to dismiss and perhaps that is the proper response for the the, the friend reader or the teacher reader is is to say okay i uh, this doesn't. This is. This is okay, but I don't. I don't. I don't get it or like it or understand it. 
instead of what, what I felt like I have done recently working with, with students, although I'm not presently employed, uh, is to try to um, find some way to endorse this thing that they're doing that I don't understand, yeah. uh, which, which they don't understand either and don't necessarily need to be encouraged in it. And, and, uh, and then they end up going off in some other direction or feeling like nothing matters. So I think it's fair to say this sentence is crap and sentences matter, right? Especially if you're the visiting guy. Yeah. And well, don't have to live with it, you know? Yeah. That, see, that was the That's thing. why you bring in visitors is to say the simplest things and then they, they leave. Um, you know, one of the nice things about being the visitor is then you also then get credit for everything else that, that the people who have been teaching all semester or all year yeah. will say things that you didn't even say. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, when John Lennon was here, he told me... <laughs> and you know, Catherine Davis is saying oh, that was that's my thing. I said that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, that's the conclusion I came to eventually. That that is that was my role, right? But at the, in the in the moment, you know, I have never gotten this kind of pushback from graduate students before. I mean, even I've had I've had very robust debates about mm. about style um, and and structure with with fiction graduate students, my own graduate students, sometimes very contentious and heated. Um, but in the end, um, I did feel like I was getting through to those people, um, mostly because three weeks later, we would be getting along again after our argument. And then, uh, we, you know, we I would realize that I'd been wrong about X, they would realize that uh, they'd been wrong about Y. And we would kind of realize that what we had had was a was a productive discussion, not a fight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I felt in the moment I was not serving these students because I was getting paid to give them something, right? To show them something to, that's useful to them. And instead, I felt that I was, uh, I had come, I had come in here with my rigid notions of what fiction was supposed to be, and I was smacking them around with it, and I didn't even know what they were trying to do, and I was uh, being foolish in some way. By the end of the week, you know, after because I wasn't going to say anything about this to the to the faculty mm -hmm. um, because this, you know, it's a you have to I think yeah, maintain some pro, yeah. yeah yeah exactly so um uh but they uh, they wanted to know they, because I think I think they knew something like this was going to happen because or had a feeling because uh, I've just write in a different style from many of their students and so. Mm -hmm. Um, we, I actually had a really earnest discussion with them about it, and they uh, several of them said what you're essentially saying that this is the role of the visitor. I can come in and say this sentence sucks, fix it, and mm -hmm. you, you know, and I can be uh, more blunt than the faculty are able to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. I was, you know, presumably even if even if they don't take any of my advice, things have been pointed out to them that they're not going to be able to unsee, and maybe it will right. make them rethink. Other, Later other on, parts. they can't they can't say that they haven't been told. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah that's, that's right. That's the line from the Sopranos, the, the sort of the the uh, which you've never seen the Sopranos, yeah. uh, but the uh, what I think is the, the the top of the the arc, the climax of the entire you know eighty hours of it is uh, uh, the the mob boss's wife goes to uh, a shrink who's a different kind of shrink, more of a rabbi type shrink, <laughs> and he says, "No, you 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 don't need to set more boundaries with your mob boss husband. You need to." Uh, leave today, take the children and and go away and don't take any of his money and forge a new life without his without his his 
this bloodstained money. And she just refuses to listen. And he says, I, I, I don't expect you to listen to me. But you can't, later on, you can't say that you haven't been told. <laughs> you can't say that you haven't been told. That's what these students. Does the shrink uh, survive the series? It's uh, it's it's the only time we see him. Okay, okay. We only yeah. see him once. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then if if you if you had come in and the students had been writing, um, you know, just fine sentences, uh, but the work had maybe not been very imaginative or experimental, your role then would have been. You know, open up and see the world through the prism of open. <laughs> you know, unscrew the doors, un, unscrew the jams from the locks or whatever, man. Come on, <laughs> live a little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if this, you know, I, I was, as as Rian said before, as I was leaving on this trip, she she said, you know, uh, you go away for a week often. But you've never gone away for a week to a place where you have no friends, yeah. <laughs> and it was true. I and I, I, I luckily I had a lot of work that I had to do. You made some, I hope. Uh, yeah, I did you actually. Make friends. Yeah, yeah, I did make some friends. Um, and by the end of the week, I, I basically just broed down with this guy Dave, who's the uh, director of the program out there, who I really like and who's writing. Did you good meet the delightful um, and wise Carl Phillips? I had met Carl at Cornell a couple uh-huh. of years ago when he came to give a reading, and I liked him very much. But he was out of town oh, um, this week, and uh, also Mary Jo Bang seemed not to be around. Um, uh-huh. I had met and liked her at AWP, but um, so yes, I didn't talk to any poetry faculty. But I, I will say who I did meet, who I thought was really nice, uh, this guy Marshall Klimazuski, I think his name is pronounced, uh, who's a novelist, and Daniel Dutton, who is a uh, uh, experimental writer and also Danny Dutton, Danny, Danny Dutton, Donny, Donny DeLillo. And she also runs this press called, uh, I'll link to it, uh, the Dorothy Project. And they published, among other things, um, Dorothy Project, uh, this book that I love by uh, Barbara Commons, a, a sort of previously forgotten mm-hmm. novel um, called. Hold on. C-O-M-Y-N-S, right? Yes, C-O-M-Y-N-S. Who was changed and who was dead? A really great book. Yeah, oh, that's a great book. Really great book. I've read that book. I've taught that book. Yeah, and it's Danielle who brought it back into print. So I actually actually left St. Louis before I realized that's who she was. I was like, oh. incredible book. I actually had a great moment with um, uh, her husband, Marty, is also a literary guy. We used to be an editor at... um, uh, uh, Dalkey Archives. So we uh-huh. and and uh-huh. he's he knows like William Gass, who apparently lives down the street from them in St. Louis. Um, and uh, so we we uh, geeked out about Stanley Elkin and so on. But their their child is predictably extremely funny and articulate. And he's did Elkin live in St. Louis too? Um, that's a good question. Or is that just the Gas connection? That might just be the Gas and Dalkey Archive connection. Yeah, but um, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, uh. So with the three of us, the three adults, were talking. I went over to their house for an hour and uh, had a had a glass of wine and chatted. And uh, their son uh, Elijah comes into the room, and he holds up his hands like this. He's four. He says, "I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I have a very important question for Daddy." And so his father is like, "Yeah, what is it, buddy?" And he goes up to him and says, "Daddy." Do you like cheese? And it turns out that he what he had done was he had set up in a in a plea for attention, 
he had set up in his room an elaborate um, Rube Goldbergian father trap. And the bait, <laughs> the bait was a piece of cheese. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then his father dutifully went up there and allowed himself to be trapped by the, by the cheese. So, wow. That's yeah. awesome. But anyway, um, and uh, uh, this guy, Dave Schumann, who directs the program there, and Catherine Davis, who I've corresponded with, and she and I have been reading each other for years, um, and, but I'd never met her until this weekend. Uh, so it was, re- it was, it was fun great. to meet these people. Did you make it but to the museum? I did. I did go to the museum. Um, Good museum. Uh, lots of uh, Richter and Polka and those guys. There's a huge. Uh, the big Max- Anselm Kiefer bookcase. There was that there. Mm-hmm. Yep, and yeah. the and the, all the uh, broken glass. Yep, the Max yeah. Beckman uh, room and mm-hmm. uh, George George Grosch Grosch is that how it's pronounced? But it was great. It was a great museum, and the contemporary yeah. wing was terrific too. So, um, yeah. so thanks for the recommendation. Also, I should say, eating. I ate some good food in St. Louis. Believe it or not, not in barbecue. I went to Vernon's twice. Once it was closed, or not, yeah, once it was closed, and the next time I went, they were out of brisket, and that's what oh. I wanted. So I didn't get any barbecue there. But um, did eat many meals at Soul Taco. Tell me about Soul Taco. Soul Taco is, um, it used to be S-O-U-L a- or S-O-L? S-E-O-U-L. Oh, different. A different soul than it's, I could even imagine. That's right. Co- co- Korean, Korean tacos. tacos. So. Oh, Korean tacos are the Korean best. Korean tacos. Uh, uh, th- th- there's a uh, note here on their website. I'll link, I'll link to this. And uh, he says, in the past few years, it has been pressed upon me. This is David Choi, the owner. By the locals in each prospective city that he's been in to try Korean barbecue tacos. To me, being a Korean American, Korean barbecue was something that was all too familiar. We have a family recipe that was passed down from generation to generation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to put it inside a corn tortilla, salsa, fresh veggies, and a wedge of lime, that was beyond my imagination. So I tried these so-called epic Korean barbecue tacos at the first bite. Wow. The flavors just fused so well together. I, I thought, why doesn't my city have this? So they started a food truck, which was tucked away in some obscure corner of campus, uh, and they finally got themselves a storefront. And... Uh, <laughs> Man, these tacos are the best. They have a nice uh, gogi bowl too, which is yeah. which is a uh, bibimbap like, but not a food truck anymore. Not, I think they do Store have front. a f- they do have a food truck, um, and they have a a schedule posted inside the um, inside the uh, uh, the restaurant that tells you what corner the food truck is going to be on at different days that week. But the but the taco place was in walking distance of my hotel, so I just after the tutorials, I I uh, went out to lunch there every day. Very nice. What what does a Korean taco run in St. Louis? What in terms of price? Yeah, what's it cost? I don't uh, know. It's like three dollars. No, like two fifty, two twenty five for. Th- well, hold on. There's here's the menu. The taco is two fifty, and you you typically buy three of them, mm-hmm. and you can get them with uh, we can get them with. Uh, Steak, chicken, pork, or tofu. Do you have anything like that in uh, Ithaca? No, we don't. We have um, we've got Mexican restaurants, and right across the street, we've got a uh, we've got a Korean style uh, Asian restaurant that will. But no tacos. I think I see a business opportunity for you, John. Yeah, I'm going to open it up right in the middle of Aurora Street, right Mm -hmm. between the two places, as the traffic uh, goes tries to go around me. Mm -hmm. So. That's great. Did my did my old student Amanda show up? I did not meet her. 
Oh, well, if she, she if she did, she didn't introduce herself. Mm. She's not shy, so maybe she skipped it entirely. <laughs> she must have skipped it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was uh, it was well well attended. I ended up what I did at the end of the week I, after you know days of feeling bad about ripping apart people's first drafts. I I threw away the reading I was going to do, and I I read first drafts. I read I read works in progress. So I, hmm. I read an unpublished short story, and then I read a chapter from the novel in progress. And Really? And, yeah. And I invited... Uh, so they know about it, and I don't. Yeah, it's true. They they don't. I'll, I'll send you the chapter if you want. Oh, but, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait till you're done. All right. Uh, but I actually said, you know, uh, so if any of you have any uh, comments, you know, suggestions, I'm happy to entertain them, um, mm-hmm. thinking the students would get a chance to get their licks in. And the students were very polite, and they didn't say anything. However, some random lady... <laughs> Uh, who had previously at my talk revealed herself to be a um, semi-retired biologist. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the elements of this chapter is uh, infidelity. This, this guy is a, is a sort of serial philanderer and then actually flat out falls in love with somebody and it nearly ruins his marriage. And so the, the couple has moved very far away from New York city to keep him away from women. (laughs) And he is of course, (laughs) continued, continued the affair and it's going to Uh result in disaster. So they've gone to like the North slope of Alaska or someplace where it's only men working. You know, it's, it's a, in the fields of Wyoming in the woods in central New York. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, so this, you know, this guy's particular type of infidelity is a, is a running theme in the, in the novel mm-hmm. so far. And um, so this woman raised her hand and said, uh, <laughs> and said, uh, uh, are you going to, are you going to continue to develop this male infidelity theme? And I said, uh, yeah, I am. And she said, don't, it's boring. And oh, I said, oh. oh, you think it's boring? And she says, yeah, it's boring. And then she said it again. <laughs> Boring. And so, uh, you know, I moved on to other... It didn't bother me. Just the voice you need in your head as you yeah. continue to work through this manuscript. Boring. Boring. You wake up in the middle of the night. Boring. Sound from the basement. But afterward, uh, many of the students who I had so harshly criticized before were um, very sympathetic that I had been I'd been uh, dissed like that at the reading. And though I hadn't mi- minded the criticism from this lady, it, w- uh, it was it was gratifying that they that they were willing to uh, they were willing to uh, c- commiserate with me about this. So after mm-hmm. I had done it to them, yeah. Oh, very good. Now yeah. you were you were in the club now. Yeah, I was in the. I you was had the, the mark on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, scent of shame. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they would have asked me out for drinks that night if they hadn't just seen me uh, publicly publicly dissed yeah. by a retired biologist. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's that was my week, but I haven't heard much about yours except for the except for uh, the newly agile Oscars attempts to flush all your possessions down the toilet. All Oscar all the time. That's what's going on here? I had a. a one of the best periods of my writing life from about September, mid-September to mid-October. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hear, by the way, that you you read from this new work at uh, Second Wind with Virginia, and it was very good, is what I hear. Well, I'm glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's energetic. I think it reads well. It, um, it's uh, 
I don't know how one encountering it on the page would, would, would see it probably as this is just a, a story or an essay with line breaks. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's all. If that's all it is, that's all it is. I'm take, I take what, at this point, I'm, I'm taking what's coming with the writing rather than, you know, programmatically saying, how can I contribute to the avant garde today? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know this is this is just what I what I got to write. That that's an acceptable title. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> um, but then there's nothing's nothing was coming, and uh, that was fine. But it's sort of I mean it was uh, it was a very intense emotional time uh, when the writing was going well. I mean, yeah, I didn't. I, things were not going well generally. Um, uh, things. Well, I mean, I was I was really coming to terms with the fact of of my you know being unemployed and being broke and yeah. being someplace that I, I like but don't really want to be and you know um, feeling very kind of constrained by the child, which is natural. Yeah, um, and then worried. It, the part of the part of me that that wasn't constrained was just worried. You know, is he breathing? You know, <laughs> you know, at four in the morning and he's fine, of course. You know, yeah. but. Um, uh, but oh then when God, the writing, I'd, I'd forgotten about that. Jesus Christ! Oh, the constant, intense worry. Yeah, and then you can't you can't really enjoy fiction or movies very much because so much of it is about injuring children. Yeah, you know, it's, it's or, shocking. You don't realize how much of it is about injuring children until you've got one. All of it is yeah. about injuring children, and if it's not about injuring children, it's about injuring adults who used to be children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You know? Um, you know that uh, Sparkle Horse song, "Little Fat Baby," the saddest song ever written. Yeah, he got dragged uh, by a donkey through the dirt and the myrtle. He was once a little fat baby. Yeah, it goes. It's like all the all the hu- pain and humiliation that this guy is enduring, and then he just kind of reminds you. By the way, he What's once a was a little fat baby. Yeah. So anyway, you were you were experiencing those anxieties, but your writing. Was uh, but the writing well. was going well, and then the writing kind of stopped, and everything was better. So it was. I, 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 it's hard to say. I mean, I'm sort of two people. As as a as a citizen, uh, when the writing was going well, I was miserable, and then when the writing was was over, I was happy. But yeah. as a writer, when the writing was going well, I was really fucking delighted. And then when it was over, it was like a uh, a hangover or. Uh, uh, you know, like a mental illness, depression. Yeah. Uh, but those were happening at the same time, right? Yeah. Delight and misery, just depending on what I was trying to do. If I was feeding my kid, I was like, man, I'm glad that that writing's over. And then if I was sitting, because <laughs> my life is, uh, my free time is organized around, around writing. If I was sitting, you know, in front of a page, I was like, oh, I just want to, you know, leap off a tree limb. You know. Um, well, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the the mind of the writer is designed to generate dissatisfaction at all times so there's always there there's always something that needs correcting you know so that you never lose the sense you know actual contentment is anathema to what we're trying to do and so even if we're inclined as i think you and i both are to be pretty happy people with mm-hmm. a lot of love in our lives we will go out of our way to find things to be worried about or to at least i will uh mm-hmm. you know to um to feel to feel the incompleteness of a thing yeah and so Except- some part of you is always striving toward completing a th- even yeah. the incompletable 
Yeah, if things are going well, I just sort of need to broaden my search. Yeah, that's <laughs> to, to, to find something bad. Yeah. You know? Well, she use use broader search terms. You know, <laughs> expand the perimeter. <laughs> yeah, like wait well, you know a what it's been you know what it's been lately. What I've been obsessing about. What? The siege of Leningrad. Really? Yeah. It's over though. It's 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 been over. It lasted 882 days. <laughs> One and a half million people died. Afterwards, 2,000 people were arrested for cannibalism, and 680 of them were um, were found guilty and, and executed. Wait a minute. How many people were fa- were arrested for cannibalism? 2,000. Oh God. Um, and here's I'm obs- I'm sort of obsessing about it partly because I need to have something you know some source of misery. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's my, my helplessness about this, this terrible siege that happened decades before I was born and I have no connection to, Yeah. <laughs> except that a lot of poets that I've been reading are from St. Petersburg. I've been reading a lot of Joseph Brodsky and interviews with Joseph Brodsky and Akhmatova and Block. Um, and, and this is their city and they, you know, it, it, it relates to, to that. Were they, were they living in it at the time during the war? Uh, I think Akhmatova was in Moscow during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brodsky was born during it, I think. Is he that? Like he was born during you know? the siege. Yeah, he yeah. died. He died at like I don't know in his forties. Oh wow, I didn't realize yeah. that. I thought he was older uh, than that. No, um, he just started really young. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know, but the, the 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 thing is, I didn't know anything about it. This was not part of, and I, I don't know, I know my history pretty well. I knew nothing about. I know nothing about what happened in the Soviet Union between the revolution and the fall of communism. Mm-hmm. Not really, because the curriculum that I'm, you know, raised with in in Kansas and the '80s and in history classes, even in the '90s, was, um, you know, where why why get too interested in the particular in the particularities of this civilization that we might destroy in 30 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Oh, you want to feel bad about the siege of Leningrad? Wait until you bomb it. You know. You know <laughs> yeah. Feel bad about Stalingrad. Well, you're about to destroy it with your tax dollars, or it will destroy you. You know. Yeah. Um, but the, the fact is, it's a lot of a lot of things happen that that deserve um, deserve to be known about and considered outside of just the lens of Cold War uh, about how you feel about socialized medicine. You know, which yeah. is kind of the lens. Um, I don't know, dark and nasty stuff. It reminds me actually of uh, I just read um, I just read uh, Coetzee's Elizabeth Costello. Um, have you read this book? No, it, this is the animal a, rights one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually kind of surprised by the structure of the book, which is that the this woman who is a, a famous novelist, Elizabeth Costello, she, her she's best known for a book about uh, in which the protagonist is Molly Bloom from Ulysses. Um, and she is, gives a series of talks. Um, uh, and each chapter centers on one of these talks that she gives. One of them is on a cruise ship. One of them is at a university. One is at an awards dinner of some kind. And there are contentious talks. And then the novel shows the sort of surrounding material of the talk that is her arguing with people, her arriving at the hotel and having various, some kind of existential crisis while before the talk and then and then arguing with people after the talk. Um, 
and yeah, uh, famously, the one of the talks is uh, a, a an animal rights speech in which she compares uh, the system of uh, of farming and slaughterhouses that creates the the most of the meat that we eat compares it to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And Coetzee gave this speech. My, this is third hand, but my understanding is that Coetzee gave these speeches. He was asked to give talks, and then he would get up, and instead of just giving the talk he wrote, he would say, the talk I'm going to give to you is not coming from me. It's part of a novel I'm writing, and it's being given by a character in the novel, and here's the talk. Uh, and so uh, – but, but, the, but there's a bit where um, she gives a talk about this book by Paul West – um, and it turns out it's a real book by the real Paul West, who lives here in Ithaca. Right, right. And, Interesting. Uh, I haven't read this book, but the book is about uh, Hitler's um, the 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 plot to kill Hitler, the foiled plot to kill Hitler, and the, mm-hmm. the way that these people were, um, the, you know, the plotters were tortured and killed by mm-hmm. the Nazis. So, uh, and he and the book is apparently claustrophobically intense, intensely like in in the moment as they are being punished for 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 their crime against Hitler. And uh she gives this talk saying that that this kind of literature is wrong that that it's that it's evil to portray these events. Uh and I found that kind of interesting this idea of uh what is our relationship to the portrayal of suffering? To mm-hmm. what extent is it is it is it a good to write about you know, to uh, to write fiction or poetry about things that are uh, that are evil is write is writing about evil. I mean, the conventional wisdom, of course, that is it's a, it's a, it's necessary that we write about these things and expose them to light. And uh, Elizabeth Costello in the novel argues the opposite that it is merely the perpetuation of the evil. Well, I think it often is. It often is. I've been thinking about. Um, uh, about this in in um in like a online news or just news right mm-hmm. um yesterday uh there was some football player who was killed on the field from a bad hit right a really? strong hit yeah. uh kid high school football player you know there's this it's a play kid gets hit and dies yeah. and the headline is high school football player gets killed on the field here's a link to the video Oh, right. Oh, that's and not so the good. coverage is not the coverage is perpetuating sort of not necessarily the evil, but the um, unfortunateness, right? Not in informing people. This is not something people need to know about. It's wouldn't you like to see somebody die? Yeah, that's evil. Yeah, I think if there is evil, that's evil. Wouldn't you like to see somebody die? Would you like to see somebody? Die? I mean, Aristotle says that's the basis of art. We he says we don't want to see people die. We don't want to see dead bodies. We like to see replicas of dead bodies. We like to see a drawing of a, of a dead body. We like to hear people talk about a dead body, a statue, a song about a dead body. Don't don't really want to see a dead body. Um, I don't know. I don't want to see a video of of a child being killed by another child in a game. No, it's a, but it's a, it's perpetuating the thing that happened. And it's also it's for it's, a pornographic reason. Yeah, it's it is pornographic. I mean, it's and it's yeah. um it's deeply uh, um, humiliating to the it, it's it's a it, lack of respect for that for that kid and 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 humans. Well, 
Yes. Yeah, it lacks respect for life. Um, today on the, the front page of CNN, today, today or coming up is the, you know, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of, of Kennedy. Yeah. And the, uh, um, all the images are of the, you know, him and, and Jackie and John Anderson and, and whoever else in the uh, limo about to be shot, right? This yeah. happy image of, of this man in the last uh, seconds. You know, seconds of his life before he's shot to death in front of his wife in, in America, right? I don't think that's the right way to do that. I think that is, a, in many ways, a perpetuation of the assassination plot. Whoever authorized it. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's not it's not a it's not a commemoration of memories of this president or his legacy or his family. It's not even a commemoration of the the memories that people have. It's oh remember when we saw that guy get his head blown off. Let's watch it again. Yeah. You know. Nothing is gained from that, and a lot is lost. I, th- I, th- this occurred to me uh, last year. There was this video going around of, um, I guess there was a cargo plane somewhere in the former Soviet republics that uh, crashed quite spectacularly right. on takeoff. And yeah. um, it's it's the the video of it is you know in a, a dash cam as right. always happens in Russia, a dash cam managed to capture um, this yeah. event. And it's very, you know, you get this cr- crazy vertiginous feeling watching it of something so, you know, large uh, just falling out mm. of the sky like that. Um, and then, of course, I realized that. Turned out to be a hoax, though, wasn't it? Uh, I, don't think, I don't think it was a hoax. But, um, but uh, then, of course, I realized that it, I, I was watching it the way you'd watch a spectacle in a movie, right? Yeah. But, of course, what I'm really watching is, you know, half a dozen people dying, the yeah. crew of this, of this plane dying. Uh, and suddenly it was it was appalling, but it was like you know I actually wrote I actually had this story in my uh, in the hundred stories book about a guy who witnesses a, a murder, uh, but he's the murder takes place on a I th- I'm I might be misremembering my own story, but I think that it's the murder takes place on a like a football field, an empty football field at night, and a stadium. And someone is up in the bleachers and sees it happen, and they don't report it to the police because it just it doesn't seem real because it was way over there. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. The other thing this reminded me of is um, uh, Richard Hugo bombing Charles Simic. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that story. Letter I, letter to Simic from uh, one of the letters. Yeah. Well, I've both both a story and and also in in the thirty one letters and thirteen dreams. Exactly, and uh, it's um. Yeah, the, the dear Charles, and so we meet once in San Francisco, and I learn I bombed you long ago in Belgrade when you were five, and then he tells the story, and I actually, I actually, t- um, when when Simich was in um, in uh, Ithaca a few years ago, I actually got to talk to him about this poem and the and his childhood in in uh, Belgrade. But what did he say about the poem? Oh, he he had you know he liked the poem. He didn't have he didn't have anything you know he was if he didn't like the poem he wasn't going to start blathering about it over dinner with a bunch of writers he just met yeah but uh um but uh it's a great story this is a dark episode Ed well this is what happens when we don't this is what happens when we don't talk for a month we all the all the darkness comes out. You, yeah. If you, uh, which you, I asked you the price of taco of Korean tacos in St. Louis, and that was about a minute and a half. Yeah, well, it doesn't take long to that say two fifty a piece. That was my attempt <laughs> to try to try to try to take us in the direction of of food. 
Here's something shallow that we can talk about. Um, my new pants. Are they shallow pants? Um, uh, they're not. Well, I mean, insofar as being vain. Are they high waters? <laughs> no, they're for um, through, for, useful for walking through uh, water. No, they're they're a uh, they're a technical dungaree for the 21st century, is what they are, Ed. Oh, nice, nice. These are um, I, I read I saw this video review on a, a tech site. I think it was on Ars Technica. I should um, I should look for that. Um, uh, these are okay. Hold on. Yeah, there's a there's a video review uh, um, by this woman named Casey Johnston. And the headline is, is on Ars Technica, the technical pants that replaced my jeans. And then underneath it says, the pants from a startup called Outlier mean I'm maybe never going back to denim. Wow. That, the, the, them strong words right there. And yeah. there's a video of this woman pouring. Th- these are sort of water resistant. Uh, there's a video of her pouring a pitcher of water over her pants and the water beating on them. Are you wearing them right now? I'm not. I'm still in my pajamas, oh. really. But oh, I, I, I will be wearing them in about 45 minutes. Um, so I bought a pair of these. They're they're very expensive, uh, for me anyway. Um, and uh, these things are uh, – they're made of this this work cloth, they call it. It's, it's um, part – let's see. It says the outer face is canvas weave comprised of a healthy percentage of quarter-grade nylon – the interface is completely different, a loosely woven nylon polyblend that has been made to a subtle softness. The result is incredible. A rugged, ready-for-anything fabric that stays both comfortable and breathable. Basically, what these are are very comfortable pants that are uh, resistant to stains, um, yeah. and uh, uh, they are, have, a, have a great cut, so they look good. Not too hip. They're um, they're pretty form fitting but they're loose enough to be able to wear a pair of uh um long underwear underneath them in the we winter. We used to call them parachute pants. Well, these are sort of a slim jeans cut kind of rather. Mm-hmm. But they're you 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 have to you'd have to feel them. They're You think um, they have you think they have larger sizes? They do. Well, let's see. Now they only go up to 36. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they I, do. <laughs> I'm presently a 33, so I'm I'm in there. But uh, to to uh, I'm about that. I'm about that. I'm about 30, a little bit, a little bit more than 33, 30, three and a half, <laughs> 34. <laughs> I think the smallest the smallest waist I can remember having was maybe a 40. Yeah, like when I started wearing wearing pants that said what their what their waist was. My first pair of Levi, you know, 501s from Litwins in Topeka <laughs> was probably a 40. So do you, do, I mean, but anybody who's, almost anybody who's your height is going to have a bigger waist than average, right? Yeah, but, the, but the, the tall people that I see tend to be really lean. Yeah? When I see somebody my height, they tend to be uh, pretty skinny and like really long-legged. I've never seen... I've seen maybe one or two people in my life who are like my height and and heavy. You don't see a lot of it. Oh. It's weird. It's alarming. It's it's a signal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a warning. <laughs> yeah. The kingly physique is not uh, I think uh, uh only endures with a, a retinue of servants. 
<laughs> um, so I, uh, speaking of your um, physical appearance, you're you've been growing your hair out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why, and I don't know when it's going to stop. Yeah, I grew mine out for a little while there. I just cut it finally yesterday, but um, yeah. I, Rian likes it a little shaggier. Yeah, uh, but I like it. Uh, I like it uh, trim. I find I, what I found is that I can I can have it long. I just need a little bit of a little bit of pomade uh, to brush it out of my uh, eyes before I leave the house. Yeah, kind of keeps it out of my eyes, so I'm not like you know doing the 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 little surfer uh, <laughs> head, flip, head yeah. waggle. Yeah. <laughs> so when I go down to Katie O'Keefe's, you know, to bet on the horses, I'm not, you know brushing this long gray hair out of my face <laughs> yeah still it, it's that there's something um uh one, one of the things I, I think i may have say, said this on the show before but one of the things i love about going to new york that i didn't care about when i was younger but now i like very much is that there are a lot of guys older than me who are really cool in new yeah. york and who look cool and, you know, guys who are 50, 60, 70 who yeah. are walking around like hipsters. And they, and it doesn't – it looks age-appropriate, right? They're owning it, you know? Yeah. They've found a way to look cool and be cool while being the age that they are. And well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work anywhere else. And there's one less than there used to be since we last spoke. Oh, you mean Lou Reed? Yeah. 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 I would say he's the pioneer of that look. Yeah, Maybe so. Yeah. You know, he, he uh, that one kind of hit me hard. I was surprised because usually, even when say writer, you know, some of one of my favorite writers dies, I am sad. Yeah. Um, but in a way, especially if they've had a fairly long career and they've died at an, a, a reasonable age, you know, eighty, mm -hmm. ninety, mm -hmm. um, I, I I think ah well, you know, they've given us a lot. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we've got what we've got. But right. for Lou Reed. I feel I feel there's there was an incompleteness to his career, right. you know. The bloom of youth was still on him. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. You know that th what didn't he do a thing with Metallica? You know he's he he'll do he he do, he'll do he he'll do anything. And if he'll do anything, there was still a bunch of stuff he could have done. Yeah. You know, plus the idea that even though there was never going to be a Velvet Underground reunion uh, you know, the idea that the Velvet Underground still more or less existed theoretically in the world was right. kind of important to me. I'd never really yeah. thought about it before, yeah. but that's what ha happened to me. You know, when when uh, when I learned he died, the first thought was, so now there really is no Velvet Underground. Maureen Tucker still lives. She's a tea partier somewhere in Houston <laughs> suburbs, I think. I think so. Apparently she has friends uh, here. Uh, and uh, Jim, my neighbor Jim uh, Spitznagel, um, who's met her a few times from when he ran a record store, has seen has seen her around Ithaca, yeah, uh, from time to time. And uh, Doug Yule still lives, yeah. Lou Reed's replacement, I believe. Was it Lou Reed's? Did he sing on the next? Anyway, Doug Yule, who joined yeah. Velvet Underground for Loaded, is he on Loaded? Maybe. I think you might be right. Yeah, he is a. Uh, Fiddle, a violin bow maker uh, and violin repairer in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. Really? Yeah. That's cool. That is pretty cool. It's a cool thing to be. How does he dress? Never seen him. Probably a long dress, long yeah. plaid jumper. I don't know. 
this is this you know i'm I, i'm telling you this this kind of uh how to be a semi hip looking old guy this is this is a, a real concern of mine now that i've now that i've learned to accept my vanity yeah now that i'm no longer pretending that i'm not vain uh i want to uh, because i think what happens is you know it's happening to to people i know uh and and it's certainly happened you know you go back to your hometown and you see other people who are your age who you grew up with they have yeah. Yeah. People give up. They're like, well, I don't, I am, my physical manifestation is no longer relevant. Thus, yeah. I will, I, I will, I, I will seek to obscure it with my vestments. Right. You know, right. whereas I think it's possible for everyone to kind of be, you know, be, be physically in the world, a part of the, you know, a part to of To wear the, a color. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm, I'm very vain in this respect. I mean, even though I, my my clothing options are, are are limited because of my my size, there's one store, you know, in every state that I can <laughs> yeah. shop in. But but no one is more vain than than a heavy person, really. You know, that's interesting. Somebody who's always been heavy. Yeah, the vanity level because you think you worry more about how you look. Not necessarily enough to eat a salad or go to the gym, but you worry more about your look. <laughs> How are you looking at anybody else? Because you're always thinking about it. You're always reminded of it. You never forget it. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, but you know, the the thing thing about you is, I mean, you, one of the many things about you. Ah, uh, no, this is the one thing. <laughs> is um, you have a way of carrying yourself. You know, you, you pay a lot of lip service to the idea that you're overweight and you're, you know, uh uncomfortable with your uh with the way your body is wait hold on just a second (laughs) wait a minute it's a cat mobile yeah i know but i thought that cat mobile was big and way behind you and far away and then suddenly i've been watching (laughs) oh my god i've been watching these cats right above my head i've been watching these cats above you know twirl around above ed's head for an hour and then suddenly one of them is in front of his face and i'm like what the hell's going on all right that's a great mobile by the way i like that their cats their legs are like uh articulate yeah, except for this one that Oscar tore the the hind leg off of this little yeah, calico. He's got a little stump. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that little bit has sort of thrown the whole thing off balance. Yeah. But actually this but speaking of balance, that's what Kids I was about mobiles. to say. You have you have a certain grace oh, that you sweetie. that you carry yourself in, a, in with with uh f- with fluidity. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, as I've said many times about you about being in a bar with you, the way you sort of the way you kind of slide extra whiskeys in front of a person as, <laughs> as though they just made them materialize there with their mind. Well, I'm nowhere more comfortable than a bar. And uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I'm not sure that that's good, but it's true. I understand the codes <laughs> of the bar. I don't necessarily under the co- understand the codes of anywhere else. <laughs> so you're, um, you're, you are, uh, you've been betting on dogs. Well, I, I bet on some dogs yesterday. I, I, I don't want to, but but sometimes there's so the, the dog races are every eight minutes, and the horse races are every thirty minutes. So sometimes, you know, there's not a race coming up, and I'm sort of feel like I should gamble on something, and so I'll bet on a dog. <laughs> I feel you know, bad about it. I was why? Well, because it's they're being mistreated. I, f- the dogs. I feel the dogs are being mistreated. Yeah, um, I'd feel better about it if I won. Consistently, <laughs> or at least one is is as often as I do with the horses, which is maybe every 
I don't know, fifth or sixth horse I pick, which I think is a, a good average. If you're not betting very much money, then, you know, if you're winning 10% of the time, 15% of the time, 20% of the time, yeah, then you're going to break even. Yeah. You know, but you're, but you're, you're probably not winning 20% of the time. I'm, I'm probably betting 15, 20%. Oh, that's good. So then yeah. do you uh, assuage your guilt by spending that money on uh, giving that money to an animal rights organization? <laughs> I ought to. Or do you spend it on a salad or, or a gym membership? Um, I, I, I buy it on, uh, I spend it on salad memberships. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to uh, Virginia about you not long ago, um, about the, about your, the way you're bet, betting on dogs. And, uh, and I suddenly said, you always, you, you know what that means when you hear the phrase betting on dogs, you know what that means. But, uh, and then Virginia said, yeah, you would never say betting on cats. <laughs> right? I'd, I'd bet on a cat. If I'm in a gambling m- mood, I might throw $2 on a cat race. <laughs> she said, she said, what would you bet on? Which one wakes up first? <laughs> <laughs> Which one enjoys this ball of yarn more? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what's, is there a particular – what's the bar that you go to to bet on dogs? Katie O'Keefe's. And is there – where the rice is taking place? Um. Bluffs, which is in Iowa, is where the dog races are. And I'm saying this, I have probably bet on three dog races in my life. Oh. So but they're they're they they run alongside the horse races. So I mean, I'm not uh, um I'm not really investing money or time or thought in, in the dogs. Okay. But uh Do they still do the like the mechanical rabbit running along the outside of the track? Lucky. <laughs> there goes Lucky. That's what they say. In in horse racing, when the when the race starts there's often an Australian announcer who says racing or, you know, something, you know, and they're off. But with, uh, uh, with the dogs, it's, well, there goes Lucky. And that's the, that's the rabbit. Wow. Here goes, there goes Lucky. And that's what they chase. I, I, though I do, I do not, I don't like the idea of dog racing as, as any thinking person would. I must say that I am pleased to hear that that, little anachronism the mechanical rabbit remains like i'm glad that 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 artifact has survived into the 21st century if you'd a, if you'd asked and say asked me if i had been alive in say 1965 we still going to have that mechanical rabbit in 2013 would have been a probably would have been a no but there it, it is no because greyhound racing is going to be illegal and punishable by death <laughs> that's in right 2013 well, fighting and so will high school football. Fair for that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but uh, my our, uh, friend George Meyer was is a. Uh, uh, he said that he, that's how he made a living, kind of before things got going for him. Oh, really? Uh, Do, was, wait, uh, doing what? He, dog he was, racing. Oh, he was he he was racing ahead of the dogs. They were chasing him. He moved him to or? Colorado after college to uh, be near some dog tracks, and made a living um, uh, betting on dogs before he went to, you know, work for the Simpsons. Yeah, um, I, I love these. Uh, they're kind of. I don't like it when people put them in their in their bios on their on their flaps. But uh, I do love these. You know what I did before I made a living writing uh, yeah. stories. I killed a man with my bare hands <laughs> for twenty five dollars. <laughs> before Rita Dove's first collection, Thomas and Cuba. <laughs> 
She was a kickboxer in Thailand. <laughs> oh, what? That's the I was the perfect choice for a sample writer there. <laughs> oh God. Well, I gotta. Before Maya Angelou published uh, her her moving memoir of the difficulties of the African-American experience. She was a hedge fund manager on Wall Street. <laughs> Bear Stearns. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right, well, we should... take, taking up enough of your time. You're a busy man now. Uh, I'm less busy than I was last time we talked. I, uh, after, you know, not, now you that I'm back from... your job? No, I'm still doing my job. Well, we haven't even talked about my current psychological state. I, I, we'll, we'll we'll have to save it for next time. But I'm I'm clearing some mental space. I must say, I I am I'm learning how to uh, I'm I'm continuing to learn when to and when not to engage, uh, mo- mostly at work, but in other areas as well. So I'm I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling good about starting writing again uh, when school lets out. I want to get back to this novel. Oh, good. Yeah. So um yeah I I uh but it's I'm glad we're back on the routine. Let's uh let's continue doing this every week. Twice a week. Four Twice. times a week. What? Eight times a week. I don't have enough uh life experience to to talk about twice a week. You'd have to come up with something. <laughs> I would have to go have I would to have to go out and start <laughs> cockfighting. Yeah. You ever seen the movie Cockfighter? Cockfighter? Yeah. No, we talked about this. I haven't seen it. And then there's a movie. We talked about it on the podcast? Yeah, but then there's a book about, he wrote a book about the making of the movie, right? Well, the, the book is, is a Charles Williford book, Cockfighter. Right. Which is based on the Odyssey, uh, which is very good. <laughs> I'd never thought of that, really? It's it's the Odyssey, told in the, Atl- in the Georgia cockfighting circuit. That is a weird-ass classic, that book. Yeah. And then uh, Monty Hellman uh, directs the movie, for um, produced by Roger Corman. Yeah. Um, starring Warren Oates and a young, youthful Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> and, uh, and then Williford writes a, a, just a little book called Cockfighter Journal about being uh, on set. And I think uh, the, the three of those should be packaged together. Yeah. As a, a, a little Christmas gift for the cockfighter in your family. <laughs> You're the cockfighting meta pack. <laughs> All right. Well, good to talk to you, John. Good talking to you too, Ed. Have a uh, have a lovely afternoon. Are you hungry for lunch? Well, then let's have lunch. Do you want some lunch? Well, then we'll give you some lunch. Do you have a hankering for lunch? Well, then come to lunch. Cause it's time for lunch, box. That's right, it's time for love.